Welcome to Review the Future, the podcast that takes an in-depth look at the impact of technology on culture. I'm Ted Cover. I'm John Perry. And today we're asking the question, what are the top 10 ways science fiction fails to predict the future? So we don't do lists terribly often. I think we only did one once before. Uh, episode 31, we did top 10 living futurists. But this particular list has been a long time in coming. Yeah, we've been referencing, I think, uh, slowly and drips and drabs on this podcast. Uh, just There are a number of things that bug us from the perspective of speculation that happen just a lot in contemporary science fiction and have happened actually uh, throughout the history of science fiction. Right. We have all these gripes, and uh, you've heard us talk about many of them before, but now is our chance to just put them all down in one list, put this issue to bed, uh, maybe even name some of these gripes right. so that we can reference them later. Our hope is to name these things so that we can stop trying to explain them every time we bring them up, and we can point to this in the future as, oh, well, check out our top gripes. Now, first, first of all, we're not saying um, you know, that science fiction has to predict the future to be good uh, or to be entertaining. I enjoy myself a lot of sci-fi that's more or less just fantasy or satire or, or an excuse to do a thought experiment, and that's all perfectly valid. You can enjoy whatever you enjoy. No, we don't want to draw a box around sci-fi and say exactly. that it has to be speculative to be sci-fi. It certainly doesn't. But there is a, let's say, a subset of sci-fi that seems to want to be speculative. And so we're just going to address that stuff. Right. And I'm of the mind that we need this kind of sci-fi, right? I mean, you have very, very famous people like William Gibson and Cory Doctorow that have quotes talking about how, you know, all science fiction is only really ever about the present. And they're sort of right in the sense that it is, of course, hard to predict the future. And most of what people try to write about the future reflects right now. But I, th I think we should always be striving against those limitations. I think it's good for us to actually try to push the ball forward and make people imagine what the world might be like. We're suggesting that we should spend at least some of our time uh, when we engage with science fiction, engaging in the idea that it's a speculative medium and that we should be thinking a little bit about uh, what might actually happen. Okay, so now a couple things that we're not going to discuss here in this list. Uh, right, here's some things that we're just leaving out entirely. Uh, one is all of the things that happen in, in space operas. The entire genre, basically, of space opera is just fantasy with science fiction uh, aesthetics, right? Lightsabers instead of swords, basically, a lot of the right. time. Uh, a lot of it's essentially, it essentially seems to be about, you know, the age of exploration just across the galaxy. And and that's cool. We, we like a lot of that stuff. Right. Um, but it's... But it's, it, it's subject to different rules that aren't these rules, right? Yes. It doesn't necessarily have to predict anything about the future. Uh, and in fact, uh, the most famous space opera in the world uh, posits itself as taking place not in the future, but a long, long time ago, right? Right. So we're, we're just going to skip that one. Two more things that we're going to skip because it seems like we're sort of moving past them as a culture. Right. These would have been gripes had we done this list years ago, but I feel like we decided we couldn't we couldn't really keep these on because they've they've been addressed, I think. In right, and and one of those is is the failure to consider the internet. Uh, obviously, it's very hard to imagine someone coming out with a movie like that now, but of course, the movies of the past often have and the books too. Yeah, I a mean, serious lack of internet technology in in these future even though worlds. we can you know get vast distances in space or we have humanoid robots. I mean, this is true in Philip K. Dick. It's true in Kurt Vonnegut. It's true in Heinlein. It's true in lots of classic science fiction that's otherwise, you know, got a lot of good things in it. Um, they just didn't see the internet coming. Right. And another one, too, is sort of failure to consider 
uh, the possibility of a singularity or an intelligence explosion, because I feel like this is a concept that at least science fiction authors are broadly aware of now, if not all of the general public, and that that seems to be getting addressed as well. So yeah. these, these would have been past gripes, but uh, we're going to focus on things that we still feel are active today. Right. In the last few years, everything I've seen has, has seemed to at least feel the need to, if not display an actual singularity in the movie or book, uh, at least explain why they aren't doing that. Uh, they at least came up with some hand-waving explanation of why it didn't happen. Right. Which I think is, you know, that's new. That's in the last, I'd say, 10 years, uh, maybe even newer than that. Absolutely, yeah. So so that's something that I think is real progress in the field. And I think it's important to uh, bring that out before we get into our gripes, because we do not come here to bury science fiction. We come here to praise it. All right. So let's finally get it. into this let's list. Let's get now. into this stuff. Okay. All right. So here's the thing that annoys me the most. Yeah, you can start this one. I know this bugs you. Oh, God, I hate this. Okay, so, and this is literally the oldest problem in science fiction. It dates back to the earliest science fictions. And, I mean, we're just calling this the, the Prometheus problem, right? It's, it's that every science fiction story feels the need to follow this pattern where the technology either doesn't work or it goes horribly awry in this really, you know, it's really dangerous or it's really ethically bad and the implication of the story as a whole is always, you know, that we should go back to being uh, natural or human or authentic uh, or whatever the, the, the term is. But basically that there's some place to go back to that's better and that we've been hubristic and foolish in trying to better our lot with technology. Right. And that's why this is so uh, insulting to humanity. It's like it's, you know... I mean, because the, the other classic stories that have this vibe are like the Tower of Babel, you know, or like Icarus. And it's like, it's all about man striving too far and getting smacked down. And, you know, we really shouldn't have even have bothered. And it's like that message is just so counterproductive. Right. Well, uh, and of course, like, you know, Frankenstein, which is often considered the, the parent work of the entire sci-fi genre. Exactly. Is even, I think... Um, subtitled something like this. I think it's a modern Prometheus is the subtitle. And uh, I think these stories, they just, their basic uh, theme is like, there's no free lunch. So there might have been a time in history when a preponderance of, of technological solutions were so uh, wildly uh, dangerous or unethical that you go, go back to the, to the story of fire itself, right? I mean, if you misuse fire, of course, you can burn your whole village down. So I can see why this story gets told. But at the same time, I feel like, particularly during the Industrial Revolution, we've seen that it's just not really true that there's no free lunch. Free lunches may be rare, but they exist. And if they didn't, our world would never have exited the Malthusian trap of the Middle Ages, and we'd all be dying of bubonic plague or something similar right now. I mean, we have drastically increased the carrying capacity of our planet in the last 150 years as a species. And there's many, many examples of places where technology really has, you know, made something where before there was no chance of making something. Right. Well, my, my problem with this, too, is, is largely that it's, it's a little bit tired at this point and it's limiting because there are obviously examples of technology that have potentially severe consequences. There are nuclear weapons. There are fossil fuels. It's just that there is so much of this that it just drowns out all the other science fiction. And, and again, let's talk examples here, right? We have like right. pretty much every killer robot story still follows the Frankenstein template. Right? Sure. So whether you're talking about Terminator or even like Ex Machina, which is, I think, a much better movie in terms of its speculation. Right. 
um, they both feature at the end of the day the robot that will callously kill a human being to uh, further its own ends. Or like another example I can think of is that movie Surrogates, where people have robot bodies, and then the, the technology is supposed to work such that the bodies protect their remote control users. Obviously, why else would you use a robot body? It's for safety. And then as a major plot point in the movie, they just you know people start dying because of what the bodies are experiencing which is exactly what the technology has been adopted to solve. So why would <laughs> you know why would that technology be in use if it just if it worked that poorly? Right, right. And a, a little more obscure example of that is there was a, a recent work of literature uh, called Super Sad True Love Story yeah. that ha- posited uh, this advanced radical longevity technology that would make people live longer. And it turns out at the end of that book, big surprise, it actually hurts people's health. Right. Right. And, and the thing that I want to say about this is you can tell an interesting story if the technology actually works as intended. Right. I get why making the technology go wrong is a quick route to drama. Right. And it does work at doing that. But you can also tell a dramatic, entertaining story with technology that does give you what you expect. Right. Well, this is where I think these kind of stories are really leaving something on the table, right? Because they are ignoring the more interesting question of, you know, what happens when you do get what you wish for? And what happens when the technology does work and then it changes something fundamental about about being human, whether that's, you know, a, a longevity technology that changes what it means to plan a life, or whether it's, um, you know, a robot technology that works and changes what it means to be, you know, a, a sentient being. And this is what technology is like for us now, right? Technologies come out, they, they creep people out, they have, you know, their issues. But by and large, they also provide wondrous benefits as well. And they generally follow a trajectory where, yeah, they're buggy at first, but eventually they start working and changing the way we interact. And, you know, that's, I think, the much more interesting story to tell than one in which it always blows up in our face. Right, right. Especially when there is a trade-off and the technology is not simply just a, a, a you know, manna from heaven, a gift from God, but we still choose the trade-off because the benefits outweigh the bad. That's, a, that's tremendously interesting dramatically. That's the kind of stuff I'd like to see more of. All right, so let's, let's go to the next one, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the next one is the... Uh, what we're calling the boot in the face dystopia. Yes, and and this we named that, of course, for 1984. Right. Well, and it uh, which has the classic image of a boot in the face uh, for the rest of time, and that being the future. And so now we get a sea of dystopias. Pretty much every science fiction out there is this dystopia. Of yeah, some I mean, we have to give you counter examples rather than examples. That literally, almost every mainstream future set um, story is dystopian. Now, some of them are more gentle dystopias. The ones, I guess, that are particularly egregious that I want to talk about here are the, again, these boot-in-the-face ones, these ones where it's just sadism writ large. Now, there is absolutely... The entire ruling class is basically like a sadistic, Nazi-type, fascistic, overbearing, draconian uh, rulership. Perhaps the best example of this for the entire genre, at least in modern times, would be, say, Hunger Games, right? Because in Hunger Games... They have incredible, I guess, nanotechnology that can control these gigantic fighting arenas. Yeah, and create uh, hybrid animals. Oh, yes. Uh, like, there's like, like crazy, yeah. I mean, they really have men and, uh, pretty advanced technology in that capital city. Yeah, so they have all this advanced technology, but for some reason, they can't 
provide for everybody and they need to acquire these resources. So the main characters are from this district that I guess is the mining district. Right. And you'd think that with their advanced technology, they could invent robots to do the mining or some other technology. Right. But instead, they need these human slaves and they find it more efficient to keep the people in line using these insanely cruel gladiator games. It doesn't even seem so much like they need the people to be in line, right? They just seem to want them in line and they've like imposed on them some uh, vaguely old timey lifestyle that they're forced to lead. You know, the whole, their whole existence is basically like a punishment. They live in almost like a penal colony of this more victorious, technologically advanced capital. It seems to me like the energy expended on this sadism is just not realistic. I can definitely see 1984 type scenarios coming across in the kinds of scenarios that generate them today. Scenarios like North Korea, like really isolated small places that can be basically just dominated by violence. Or in scenarios like the old Soviet Union Cold War situation where political isolation caused a large physical area, but a single political entity to sort of have ultimate reign over a a part of the world. And obviously 1984 is meant as a parable about instituted communism. But um, it's very hard to imagine that being, you know, the whole world. Right. And I would just add to that, that as we move forward into the future and we get better and more advanced technologies, the kinds of technologies that you see in these stories, that the equation should be shifting. Because yes, cruelty works as a method to suppress people, but so does appeasing people. And I feel like appeasement is going to work better than cruelty in a world of abundance where you have incredible genetic engineering, nanotechnology, etc. Right. Now, there's a sort of a scenario that I see in science fiction that's a dystopia that maybe I find slightly more plausible, which is also, you know, the rich perpetrating terrible crimes against the poor, which is sort of the, the slow motion genocide, right? Uh, that recent movie Elysium is an example of this, mm-hmm. uh, where there's like this advanced anti-aging technology that's not made available to the poor. Or in the Marusek books, uh, David Marusek is a science fiction writer who's written books like Counting Heads and others. You know, in his world, life extension technology is not provided to the poor, right? Uh, standard healthcare is, but not life extension. And so that is, again, sort of a, the slow motion right. genocide where like the rich are sort of just allowing the poor to die. And that, I think, is a little more credible than just killing them in these crazy gladiator games just because you like the violence or something. I think that's absolutely true. The, it's not that we can't imagine atrocities in the future or that you can't have any in your story. It's just that it seems inefficient and unlikely to like just enforce horrible sadism on the world. For the most part, to the extent that we live in a nightmare, we live in a Huxleyan nightmare. Right, right. Uh, Huxleyan meaning Aldous Huxley, author of uh, Brave New World. Right. We live in a nightmare where we have no control over our political destiny, but where we're easily lulled with, you know, drugs and food and movies and and their equivalents. And I think, you know, I'd like to see basically more science fiction take the, I guess, soft dystopian point of view that it's going to be pleasant, if not necessarily empowering for those on the bottom. Okay. uh, Should we we move on? Yeah, sure. So let's talk about the next thing, which is societal regression, right? So this is a particular subcase of post-apocalyptic stories. So we're not necessarily 
uh, saying you can't have a post-apocalyptic event as your as your backstory. Many science fiction pieces do, but the thing that really bugs me when these in these post-apocalyptic stories is when it results in society like moving backward into a new dark ages or somehow losing information that we've managed to uh, not just you know have in our current world but really like widely disseminate in our current world. This seems to be a metaphor for the actual Dark Ages, which even the Dark Ages were actually a time of, of progress. Uh, some things were lost, like running water in Europe and a few other things. But actually, um, during that time, you know, progress still occurred. Uh, and if you look on a global scale, prog- a lot of progress occurred in China during that time. So, of course, um, it's really only locally to Europe that, that the Dark Ages were even dark. Right. Now, th- there's examples from the past of things that got lost because we were using technology like books to keep our information. So when a library burned down, right, that can lose a whole ton of knowledge. Right. So this is a legitimate fear that comes from our past. Right. But we're not thinking that it really makes sense given our present day. Now, Information is so widely distributed in our current present reality, and this has been the case for many years now, uh, that if a really bad thing were to happen that wiped out a large part of society, that would be a tragedy and there'd obviously be consequences, but I doubt that those consequences would be like, we forget how to make roads, right? Or, um, sure, you know, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to retain that information in any tragedy that's not big enough to simply kill us all. Right. Cause where's the information? It's in millions and millions of copies of, of various books. Uh, it's on hard drives and it's just in the brains of tons of, of people, so right? many people um, right. and people that are spread out across the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- my take on this is that, you know, for this to happen, because I'm not saying again, that this is impossible. It requires like a very finely tuned apocalypse, right? This, right. this apocalypse has to like hit this very narrow mark where it has to be bad enough to wipe out all this information that's spread out across the planet. Including lots of people. Right. But not bad enough to actually just kill off our species, right? right. Because I think either of those is more credible to me. Either, you know, okay, the, the human race absolutely could, could destroy themselves. I could see that happening. Um, and we absolutely also could have a big tragedy that doesn't really slow us down that much aside from it being terrible. But to, to hit this middle target feels a little far-fetched to me. Right. Well, especially given how many things take this as a given. And I think, again, this is like a, a way that uh, people's anxieties about modern society, like sort of losing something that we had in the past, get played out in science fiction. And I always wonder about that because I feel like that sense of loss is pretty constant throughout history, but it's not actually all that clear what it is that we're losing. Examples I can think of off the top of my head are like in Cloud Atlas, in the sixth section of, of Cloud Atlas, the, the part with the true true, <laughs> you know, where uh, Tom Hanks is wandering around the, you know, post-apocalyptic scenery, um, sort of speaking pidgin English and, you know, sort of like living the life of a almost like reverted caveman. Right. And that's ostensibly the very, very far future. Right. In that that's movie. the furthest future. There's yeah. a there's a future before that where it's like a sort of hyper roboticized uh, Korea and that feels much more like a future we could get to. You know what it is? is it's the whole um, history repeats itself thing. The, the whole model that like, like we're just like, like kind of going in a circle, civilizations rise, civilizations fall. And my feeling is that we, we've kind of left the circle at this point. Like since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, like, since like, even before then, really. I mean, since written knowledge, people haven't been reverting to pre-civilized forms all that often. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it maybe goes farther back because, and and now we're definitely at the point where it's kind of all or nothing. It's kind of like either we keep moving forward 
or we or we probably really really screw up and go the way of the dinosaurs. Right. Well, and so yeah, I'm not opposed to seeing more stories of like the last surviving bands of humans who are just basically, you know, fighting their inevitable death at the end of an apocalyptic event. And I'm also not opposed to seeing more stories where you know, apocalyptic events occur, but they just galvanize more technological advancement. One story that does that really well is the Japanese animation uh, Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I'm sure many people know. They have a big apocalyptic type event right at the beginning where uh, something strikes uh, Antarctica and um, <laughs> wipes out a ton of the human population. But then, you know, humanity reacts and they build giant robots and they try to fight the problem and put it, you know, put the world back together. That I think works really well. You know, the worst examples of this, when you think of, uh, you know, things like Waterworld and um, the original Mad Max movies and things like that, where there are these just uh, really bizarre wastelands that are, I mean, they're, they're cool. And they're fun, right? They're I, mean, fun. I mean, nothing against the, the Mad Max series and the new one is, is fun, but yeah, right. I mean, it's... If it, you don't try to take them seriously as, as speculation, you can have a lot of fun in these worlds. And it's fun to imagine, you know, a mashup of some things from the future, like road bikes and pistols with uh, other things from the past. You know, I, I get why it's fun to do that. But again, as a as a speculative approach, it doesn't it seems like the least likely scenario. Right. OK, so the next one on our list mm-hmm. is something that we'll do quickly because we once did a whole episode on this. Uh, I believe it was episode 16. And this is what we call Super Now. OK, so right. Super Now is where the science fiction writer takes things from right now and just exaggerates them. Just yes. gives you the extreme version of whatever's currently happening and shows you, you know, what you could call differences of degree rather than kind, right? Because in the actual future, we expect that things will be truly different in ways we can't expect and not just like super versions of current technology. So some, some classic past examples of this would be hoverboards. Let's take a skateboard and make it fly. Flying cars. Let's just take a car and make it fly. Right. Uh, Cross with know, an airplane. You know, laser guns. It's like lasers were pretty new at the time that laser guns started showing yeah. up, and they just put them in the traditional gun format. All this stuff, uh, you know, these are the kinds of predictions that I think end up really biting science fiction in the butt. You know, these are the ones that lead to Peter Thiel being like, you know, his thing about we yeah, which, which we talked to, to Nicola about last time. Yeah, you know, and I and I think the, this is what um, there's there's another side to this too, which is that this is also how science fiction does satire a lot of the time, and a lot of the time, a lot of really good satire. Some of the satire I like the best in science fiction is just super now. It's just um, how do we exaggerate something that's going on now in order to make it funny, and uh, whether you're talking about Kurt Vonnegut or Wally or you know, I can think of a million different examples of of super now that I accept because it's satirical and it's funny. But when you're doing uh, speculation, I think you have to really do the hard work. And this is really maybe the hardest thing to really get out of your head and try to really imagine something new that's not just a super, you know, powerful version of something we already have, but actually is like a kind of new thing. Right, right. So let's give, uh, I mean, because the classic example of this pretty much is entirely covered by, let's say, the Jetsons. Just sure. watch the Jetsons and you'll see what we're talking about. But sure. it, perhaps some more, more modern examples would, would help make the point, too. So 
Uh, one we came up with was um, Minority Report. Right. Uh, there's a scene in Minority Report where they, they go into uh, a department store. The Gap. I, I believe it's a Gap, yes. And uh, there's like all these real life pop-up ads flying everywhere. Yeah. Now, you know, there's still time. Maybe that'll turn out to be true, but it does sort of just feel like, okay, there's a lot of ads now. There's a lot of pop-up ads on your computer. Uh, let's just make the super version of that. I mean, if, if I had to think about what a better prediction was for the future of, right. you know, clothing so, stores, right. uh, it would be, you know, if clothing stores are going to survive at all and get you to get out of your house and buy clothes in person. Well, really, that's the really good prediction is clothing stores aren't going to exist when computers are so good. Right. Well, you know, the, and you have a pervasive internet everywhere. Which, but let's even set that aside. Okay. And say there's a few brick and mortar clothing stores left. Sure. Right? They're going to have to be all about the customer experience, right? They're going to be sitting you down and giving you some lemonade and like, you know, saying like, hang on for a moment and putting you on a nice couch while they bring out like a personal stylist to help like figure out what you're going to wear. Like they're going to have to evolve along that direction, not along well, the direction. They're certainly not going to be able to annoy you annoy, yes. with, with super aggressive ads that fly into your face and that you can't turn away from. Nobody would go to the mall. And since you can obviously order things for uh, drone delivery in this future, uh, because, you know, I mean, they made that movie when the internet was already out. They should have been able to see that the internet was going to displace retail. Um, you know, they haven't really done the hard work of trying to figure out, like, what's the actual retail experience going to be in the future? They're just sort of amping up whatever they find amusing or disturbing about the current retail experience and making it worse. Right, and I think uh, the the movie Her, in a way, the whole premise of Her is kind of just like uh, Super iPhone, right? Sure. I mean, or Super Siri, Super right? Siri, yeah. But but setting that aside, maybe zooming in a little more on on details, his job, right? Right. Uh, which, which this was one of my biggest problems with Her was like the job that he does seems like in a techno in a world with the technology that runs Samantha the OS that he falls in love with. You would never need a human letter writer. It just doesn't seem at all. It seems like something people are maybe doing now. It's like a boutique, authenticity-based business on the internet, you know, um, a very now type of job. And it's just pushed into the future with, with some fancy graphics, but it doesn't take into consideration the idea that probably computers will be able to do that before they are able to speak to you in such a way that you fall in love with them. Right. And actually, you know, we've talked before, like I do think there will be, you know, authenticity based businesses, but that one in particular doesn't, doesn't quite ring true. It just doesn't seem to, I can't figure out what the authenticity adds, especially since uh, it's like ironic, right? It's like handwritten letters, but of course they're not written by hand there. You see the handwritten font coming up on the computer screen. So um, whatever might be authentic about them is actually faked right. uh, by the machine. Yeah, that that's basically covers Supernow. We did a whole episode on this, so you can yeah. listen to us go on and on about this at length if you want. But let's move on for now to the next thing, which is um, we're calling it isolated technological advancement. And this is another one that's hard because obviously with each technological advancement you imagine in your science fiction story, you have to do a whole bunch of extra work to sort of play down all of the cultural consequences of having whatever it is that you're supposing. Right. So this is where the writer adds the technologies that they want to a story to make their drama happen. Right. But they don't consider the larger, you know, ecosystem of interdependent technologies that would be in place to have the thing that they want to have. Right. And sometimes you can get away with this with a clever explanation for how something works. But a lot of times it just ends up feeling sort of incomplete or, or half-baked if you fail to consider 
the consequences of, you know, what what kind of prerequisite technology would exist for this this or that thing. So there's, there's a million examples. There's countless this. examples specifically in the area of artificial intelligence. Right. Right. Okay. So let's go through some of these. Like Robot and Frank has a really great uh, personal care robot, but not self-driving cars. Uh, similar, and actually, that's a really common one you'll see. Like, right, so, and and Morgan Frank is one where I think they actually did some work to oh, yeah, try that's true. to, yeah. like, they do have, uh, you know, different communication technology. They do have some other, you know, technologies that have that have advanced. But yeah, they they forgot to have, uh, you know, to not have anyone driving their car, and it seems pretty silly if the robot is good enough to like be your elder care machine that it couldn't just drive a vehicle. It just doesn't make any sense. Um, Another one is in the recent Total Recall movie. This one is really egregious. They have these humanoid police robots that are, you know, autonomous police robots walking around the city apprehending criminals. And you see our main character working in a robot factory welding the knees of these police robots together. And that's just so absurd because we don't even use humans to weld, you know, car parts now. Um, in our world now where we don't have anything like a police robot that can be autonomous, uh, a robot can very easily weld together a, a heavy machine in a factory. So uh, it, it makes utterly no sense to have him working in a robot factory. There's, there's just no reason for that. And there's a couple that are, that are not AI even that we, uh, that we touched upon you know, earlier, like Elysium and like Hunger Games, right, where they seem to have some kind of nanotechnology or at least that's the only explanation I can for come some up. of the like magic effects that they're getting. Yeah, yeah, and yet that doesn't seem to be you know fully broadly a, a, a applicable to the rest of the society. And so, yeah, I mean, this is one you see a lot, um, and something that's related to it, but it is not ex- quite exactly the same. Is is sometimes the technology um, seems to have just been you know dropped into the story without, you know, there was no moment before the story started where there were incremental steps leading up to that technology, right? Right. And that's the thing is most technologies don't just come out of nowhere. I mean, sometimes they do. You have, you know, nobody can fly and then all of a sudden you can fly in an airplane or like there are, there are moments that are literally just big game changers like that. But I, I think more frequently the way it happens is that little breakthroughs add up and eventually become something big. And like uh, one that we complained about when we uh, when we reviewed it is is her. You know, her's a good movie, but when he meets Samantha for the first time in her, he's utterly surprised that she's able to converse with him. But it seems that he's been dealing with pretty smart AI already. I mean, even in his job, he's dealing with a pretty smart AI that uh, can transcribe his thoughts and does a lot of other things. Oh yeah, and he has uh, again, this is, you know, he has a video game that has a video game character that's right, that's, that that interacts with him in a very human way. Right. And so the the character is just too stunned by this. It's as if he's never seen this before, you know, when, when really this is just it, an upgrade. Basically. He should be delighted. He should be like, "Wow, you're a lot more convincing than the last talking personal assistant software I had." And, uh, you know, and it does uh, advertise it in the movie as like, oh, you know, OS1 is the first operating system that's fully self-aware or something. So it, it is supposed to be a leap, but it does seem like there would have been, you know, we have Siri and Google Now now in our world, and we did when that movie came out. And it seems like there would be some intermediate steps between that and Samantha that would make people at least somewhat more used to what it's like. Maybe right. not used to falling in love with it, but used to interacting with it, at least. Right. The main character in her seems like he went straight from Siri to Samantha. 
Like, right. like you took someone with an iPhone today and then handed them Samantha and they would sort of respond like that. Right. Um, so that's very odd. So um, it's realistic to like Spike Jones's, you know, imagination of how he would react to a Samantha probably. And maybe that was his, you know, way of conceiving of the scene. Um, but I don't think it actually plays if you put yourself in the mind of someone living in that time. Well, and let's say that there is a reason this happens, which is that, you know, right, it's exposition, the audience. right? Yeah, it's the audience. It it's helps the explain audience is... stuff to the audience, right? Yeah. The other way you see this a lot is, you know, you see people explaining things to each other that uh, they've probably been using for 10 years, right? In right, and fiction. that's a general problem in writing, just yeah, that, yeah. you know, people are explaining things to each other that they already know. And, you know, obviously we got to try to avoid Right, that. the siblings explaining things to each other will like, like... Well, you know, we never get along because of that thing that <laughs> happened five years ago. So, yeah, this right. isn't just science fiction. I no, mean, this that's is just a, a general writing problem. But I definitely think, you know, you have to watch out for uh, this, particularly in sci-fi. There's, a, there's an, a tendency to make your character too much like your audience member or like yourself and not enough like the person they need to be in the time they're in. Okay. So another one that's not that different from that, this right. is a different kind of a technological isolation, but, but I, we, I think this is a different thing at the end of the day. This counts as a different way that sci-fi fails. Which is the, the lone inventor. Right. Right? Now this is when massive advances get made by a single person working in isolation. This is the mad scientist model. And it's not right. like this can't ever happen, but... Uh, it's much more likely to have happened in the past where there was a little bit more low-hanging fruit in terms of some of these advances that we could well, make. when there was a lot less prior knowledge to master before you had to Absolutely make a change. is a good point. And it also more, makes more sense uh, in, in the software realm, perhaps, right? Right, where um, I still will buy, I think, a lone software inventor, a sort of Mark Zuckerberg or whatever. Um, you know, obviously... There's now 20,000 people working at Facebook, so it's not like today's Facebook could be made by one person. But you can start a project like that with one person. And I think, again, this is done for obvious reasons. You need to have characters in a story, particularly if it's a movie. You need to have a famous actor. Uh, you need to give somebody a big part. And going all the way back to Frankenstein and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and other classic science fiction, this lone inventor is, a, is an archetype. Uh, and there are real lone inventors. There are real Nikolai Teslas and Steve's Wozniak and Jobs and, and things like that in the real history of technology. So it's not that you can never do this, but I think it's, it's this is something that's overplayed, especially when most recent major technological advances have been made by teams. Because you need a lot of different domain experts, you know, working in concert with each other sure. and with machines these days, often to, to make these breakthroughs, right? And so, you know, a quick recent example of this that we've discussed recently on the podcast is Ex Machina, right? Where that's, that's the same archetype, you know. Yeah. One Oscar guy, Isaac's character plays this, you know, um, software billionaire, sort of a Larry Page type persona, but he's bonkers, uh, who, who has designed not just the software that drives the Ava robot, which I would have bought, but really the entire body down to the brand new computing substrate that makes up her brain. And that just seems like too much for anyone, even an Einstein level genius to know in one brain. It's just, it's too complex a project. But you know, it would have been expensive to cast more people. It would have been expensive, and I, you know, and, and again, like, there's reasons why this. Stuff and it happens. would have been maybe dramatically less interesting. There would, of course, have been a project leader, someone whose vision was driving the thing, and and Oscar Isaac's character could have been that person. But you know, this is one of these things where I'd like to see this 
be portrayed more realistically uh, when possible. I, I I get why the dramatic the dramatic impulse militates toward doing this lone inventor thing, but I think it's best when you can show these things as being, you know, what they really are, which is like iterative advances made by teams, whether in companies or in governments or in universities, over time, you know, turning small things into big things. So moving on to the next one. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked about this one a lot, and I will say this one is getting better, and it is the trope of human specialness. Yeah, we actually, we debated whether we should have this one even on the list because this has gotten so much better recently, but it was so bad in the past. So we just got to talk about it, right? I mean, for years, the go-to dumbest thing that is in every single story that's got either a computer or a robot character is that there's some thing that an artificially designed mind just can't some line it can't cross it can never be really human you know right it, it can't have a sense of humor or it can't love or it can't have real empathy right uh creativity oh that one really drives me crazy that one drives me crazy because it seems to fundamentally misunderstand what creativity is i feel like computers can be creative now they don't even you don't even need sentience for creativity well well and let's uh, this is a bit more of a, an, a, an obscure example but there was a recent uh science fiction trilogy called the www trilogy uh by a canadian i believe he's canadian author robert j sawyer and where an artificial intelligence called WebMind emerges spontaneously on the internet and it has a very utopian ending where that web mind, you know, cures cancer and, you know, fixes all the world's problems and so on and so forth. And it's actually a fairly entertaining book. But gosh, man, there's this part where the, the robot is like accepting the Nobel Prize or something. I forget. And he gives a speech and he, he talks about how, you know, he's done all these great things, but he's not truly creative. And he's, the, even the speech he's giving is really just a combination of previous speeches all he knows how to do is combine existing ideas. And I'm like, that is the definition of creativity. What <laughs> That's is exactly what it is. Yeah. If not combining prior ideas in novel ways, it's like it's an entire trilogy of the computer doing amazingly creative things. And then at the end, they're like, sorry, I, I'm not, I guess I'm not creative. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just like they're defining them out of it because they're not human or something. And yeah. it, it, that seems so silly to me. Um, obviously there are versions of this where it's expressed as like the machine doesn't have a soul, right? That's an interesting one because I mean, ontologically they're probably right. The machine doesn't have a soul. I mean, arguably nothing has a soul. <laughs> arguably that's just a made up concept, right? I mean, there's no physical proof of souls anywhere. So, um, that, that one is tough because I think, uh, that gets into like sort of religious philosophy or something, but, um, to the extent that anything conscious can have a soul, it seems that a, uh, a machine should have be equally capable of doing so. Well, and perhaps the biggest one and one that is still sticky, I think, uh, in some areas of sci-fi is mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, right? Right, right. Is the idea, okay, this is, you know, think of data on Star Trek, right? Uh, in fact, we talked about data too, in, in with regards to humor in our in our what is the the future of comedy episode that we did with Dave Ross, right? About how there is an episode where where data you know tries to understand what it is to be funny, yes, uh, and and just can't quite grasp it. But there's also you know the general concept of that character in the show is that you know he's uh, he's like the embodiment of logic. He's right? like the and and of a sort of logic that is you know not able to emotionally model other people whatsoever right and like a, you know it just doesn't g 
get the nuances of human emotion, as if that couldn't just be factored into his calculations like everything else he factors in. Well, and as if that's something other than calculation, which I feel like is maybe not even the right way to think about it, right? It seems that uh, emotion might just be another level of abstraction within a a, a reflective uh, conscious mind. And I, I think there's this feeling that goes all the way back to the Enlightenment that emotion is somehow of the body, you know? It's somehow different from rationality. When I'm not sure that there's any evidence that that's really the case. I mean, maybe it is. Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, emotion, I guess, is affected by the the hormones, and it's not entirely like uh, neuronal, I guess. But um, I'm not sure that that is enough to say that it's uh, not computable. I, I I suspect it is. Well, and there's a there's a there's a really good talk about this whole issue um, um, called the Straw Vulcan that uh, uh, Julia Gellar. Okay, she's on another podcast, rationally speaking. Uh, she's big in that rationality community, but she has a talk you, I think you can probably find online called the Straw Vulcan that kind of complains about this trope. I mean, obviously Spock is another example of this. Right. Um, and it's just... Even though he's not even a robot, he's just a logical alien. Yeah. yeah. And the thing about emotions are like, emotions are the reason you have preferences, right? So even a rational person making rational decisions, you know, is operating under some emotion. Now you can become emotional, and of course, you know, we've all experienced moments where perhaps our decision making was impaired by becoming emotional. That is, you um, can act irrationally due to your emotions, right? right? I mean, isn't that what we mean when we say you become emotional is that you sort of, you don't uh, make rational decisions based on your emotions, you make irrational decisions based on your emotions. Right. But if emotions is just sort of feelings, I mean, if you didn't feel better about some options and worse about some options you would never make a rational choice whatsoever. So the, the reality is, I think, that emotionality and rationality can't even probably exist apart from each other. I mean, I think they are, they're not like opposing forces. Right. I think this is like something that's just philosophically sort of left over from, from the old days. And I think it has to do with sort of the discomfort that a lot of people who consider themselves emotional feel with rationality. You know, there's like a lot of, I'll get a lot of pushback from people who I think uh, consider themselves emotionally in tune uh, that they don't like to use a rational mode of thinking because they find it cold or they find it whatever. Uh, just just to come back to the main uh, concept of, of human specialness, I thought of an example that's very recent, actually, because okay. I, I caught uh, a couple episodes of a fairly cheesy new show on Sci-Fi Network that is not surprisingly still following this trope uh, called dark matter okay uh, i've not and, heard of this yeah uh so i'm not going to explain the whole concept of the show but they're on a ship and let's say there is a female robot on board and she has that kind of like i don't f you know fully understand humor kind of uh -huh. and like you know how to interact with humans socially what is this thing this slang you are using <laughs> So she seems sort of thing. like a foreigner or... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, that, I mean, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I mean, these are not actual quotes from the sure. show, but we've all seen this character before. So yeah. I'm like, I, everyone knows what I'm no, talking about. No, the truth about, is actually, uh, most of us have been doing much better with this. And, uh, you know, in, in Interstellar, we liked that the robot there had like a humor dial. You know, like, oh yeah, we modeled humor. It's not a big deal. You can turn it up or down, you know, and then the robot cracks jokes because its dial is set to a a reasonably high number that was like i thought that was good i thought that that felt like a, a a believable way to treat this sort of thing 
And increasingly, I think we're seeing science fiction that shows uh, technology which questions human specialness and actually posits the idea that something like a her or a deus ex machina robot, you know, when that's out in the world, that is equal to or better than a human and can possess all of the things that we that we possess. Right. Um, so, okay, so let's move on. And another one that uh, is, uh, I think, getting better, but maybe not faster enough is this idea of the primacy of reality. Right. Reality is always better than, I guess, virtual reality or, or interactions that are online. And this is, you know, partially an expression of these modern day anxieties about everybody being on their phone or on the internet and not interacting with each other. Things that I think are totally bogus. Uh, these sort of perennial fears of the lost. Uh, there's always this nostalgia that we've lost something in our, in our gains. Right, and uh, this carries over into sci-fi, often sci-fi that's about virtual reality, right? The, again, this is, this is a little bit like the last one in that it's just like in the human specialness one, there's some line of humanness that the robot can't seem to cross. There's some line of reality that the VR, no matter how good the virtual reality gets, it can be incredibly perfect, but it just can't seem to compete with true face-to-face interactions, because face-to-face interactions have some special, undefinable Sauce. thing yeah. that makes them just always better. And uh, my, my favorite example of this is, because it's a recent one, is from the book Ready Player One, which is kind of like a modern-day virtual reality, you know, classic sci-fi novel now, sort of a modern classic. And it's a highly entertaining book, even if it is essentially 80s nostalgia, the book. Uh, but it's, it has this really fully realized virtual world called Oasis that the characters have these fantastic adventures in and form these lasting friendships in. And in the end, it becomes partially a love story because the main character, you know, one of the people that they meet in the Oasis, you know, is someone that they become romantically involved with at the end of the book. And there's a scene at the end of the book where they finally meet in real life and it's a, a big moment for them. And it's clear why it's a big moment for them. That's not my problem. My problem is the last line of the book. The, so th- this book that's been all about how cool this future virtual reality is ends with the main character, you know, he, he kisses the girl that he's been longing for. And it says, for the first time in as long as I could remember, I had absolutely no desire to log back into the Oasis. As if like the final message of the book is, you know, all that stuff that came before, no matter how cool and amazing that was, really, at the end of the day, what you want is to be in the real world, right? As if, like, you know, he's not going to log back on. As if he and his VR girlfriend aren't immediately going to log back on, <laughs> since that's clearly what they're into, right? So I, I feel like... And the end of her is kind of like this, too, right? The end of her... Right, it's a little bit more subtle, but there is, like, an implication once the AIs have left that the humans who are left behind are sort of better off or that they're sort of rediscovering the world that they had lost uh, as a result. Yes. All right, next on our list is unnecessary anthropomorphism. I wish I had a shorter version of this, but we could also call this the Microsoft Clippy of the future. Yeah, this is the Clippy problem. Yeah. And this is like when artificial personalities are given to things that don't need artificial personalities. So, of course, again, we're not saying that a robot hairdresser or a robot babysitter or a robot, a sex robot wouldn't have an artificial personality. Obviously, 
there are going to be some uses of technology where an artificial personality is a plus. But consistently in sci-fi, cars, email, spaceships uh, are, are given these artificial personalities um, that seem to only make them harder to work with. They seem to have no functional purpose for uh, the thing that the, the technology in question was designed for. Well, right. And we mentioned Interstellar earlier. And I like how, again, there's a humor dial on those robots. Right. But why, why do those robots have a humor no, dial? No, I think there is a reason, actually. Because it's like companionship. Those are space robots, But aren't right? there other people on the ship with them? Not a moment? tremendous number. I mean, even... Okay, so maybe, uh, maybe I, we'll let that one slide. I'm going to let that slide. I think that's one of the rare examples of like, okay, no, that, that robot is like up there to potentially be with only one person for possibly a long period of time. And that does eventually happen to the robot, right? I mean, again, eventually they get down to one and he's stuck with them. For a while, anyway. And uh, that makes a certain amount of sense. But like uh, in Philip K. Dick books and in some of the movies based on his books, there's talking Johnny Cabs. You know, uh, we're going to have self-driving cars. The prediction was not a bad one, but they're not going to talk to us. Because why on earth would they? Why would they be anything different from Google Maps that actually drives you where you're going? I'm just thinking of the stand-up comedian car now. The stand-up comedian car? Like, hi, welcome to your car. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. That is... Terrifying. If if the car had like the same need for attention as the typical stand-up comedian and just couldn't stop cracking jokes to you about like what you're driving past, I would kill myself. Are there any people in, in the back seat uh, from Chicago here? Of course, I know you're from Chicago. I can read your social media history. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, just imagining how creepy and terrible this, this would be. I, you know, I mean... Uh, the worst part about driving in a cab is when the cab driver talks to you, right? I even mean, Kit on Knight Rider, it's like, I can understand why he has, you know, an oil slick button and an ejector seat, but why, why the hell does he talk? <laughs> Other than to give, you know, the main character a sidekick. <laughs> that's, sure. That's a car. There's, there's no technology reason why... Why you would do that. Or again, we keep coming back to it, but her really... I mean, they didn't market her as your new phone girlfriend. I guess that would make sense. They market her in that movie as your new OS. You know, and OS is a, a fraught term, I feel like, in that movie where uh, it's not entirely clear that the movie knows what OS means uh, or that they think that we do. But if you're thinking of an actual OS, like the low-level instructions that run your computer and allow you to run other programs, that does not seem like something you want having any personality... <laughs> You want it being as lightweight and transparent and out of your way as possible. I could see, again, having an artificial assistant whose job it is to organize your life. Even then, though, don't you just want to be like, you know, like, assistant, do I have any good emails? And it just puts them on your screen, right? They don't sure. have to be like, yes, sir, as a matter of fact, I do have some emails Sure, uh, they don't need to follow that butler um metaphor that I think, you know, is often followed. Uh, although maybe a little bit of that kind of butlerish feedback would be good. I think it would be much more limited than, say, a whole personality. But you might want it to have enough of a sense of humor that it can crack a joke every once in a while, perhaps. Okay, so last thing on our list. Sure. The sofa-larity. Right. This is what we call the, uh, the, tr the sort of science fiction theme that technology will inevitably make us into lazy do-nothings, right? Right. We'll all sink into the sofa and just get super fat and lazy. Maybe we'll uh, take some, you know, happy pills and bliss out, but we'll, we'll never do anything anymore. We'll get stupider, dumber, lazier, fatter, all the things that, you know, 
people say about Americans now, basically. But but right. But imagined in the future, it's well, kind of super now in a way. It's kind of super now, and uh, and I think the examples we're going to use are pretty um, satirical. So they're clearly about the ways that Americans, particularly, are perceived as being lazy and past our former glory. And I think this is a complicated thing because, on the one hand, we are objectively getting fatter. So maybe that part of it is actually true. Um, but it seems unlikely, I mean, we've talked about this before, it seems unlikely for the fatter trend to uh, extend forever. This seems like a technological way station where we've uh, gotten to the point where calories are really cheap technologically, but we haven't gotten to the point where we can you know, take control of our metabolic systems and uh, sort of program them using nanotech to, to do the way, to do our business. Yeah, I think this is a very contemporary um, situation where we have that combination of easy calories and, and not the type of technology to manage them. Right. Um, and by the way, I mean, what we're picturing here essentially is Wally. I mean, Wally, Wally is, is definitely like the most entertaining example of the sofalarity. They literally have people who are like sort of glued into their reclining chairs that are also their wheelchairs. You know, uh, another one that does this is that Mike Judge movie, which is a great movie, Idiocracy. And it's obviously meant to be satirical, but again, the people are fatter and they are much more casual. Society is much more coarse. And uh, the technological achievements of the past have all been forgotten due to the uh, incredible stupidity of the populace, right? So we don't even know that crops need water and not sports drinks in well, the that's future. like a dose of uh, right. an earlier trope that we talked about which is the uh, the, re- the regression that's one, right. right yeah they regress in that way they, they lose something that people have known for hundreds of thousands of years which is that crops need water <laughs> um, that's like a pre-civilization bit of human knowledge um which is okay because it's a funny movie and it's a satire yeah, so we, we understand joke. that but it's just yeah. that you know we're tired of some of these tropes, right? I mean, even that one, like that's a, that's the best, one of the best done versions of that. But let's put it to rest now. Like, I want to see. I feel like I feel like uh, Mike Judge killed that one for everybody else. I mean, uh, the idiocracy is so good, and Wally is so good. We don't really need to ever see that again. That's handled. And uh, what's I think more likely to happen in the future is that individual people and teams of people aided by intelligent machines are going to be productive in ways we can't even imagine now, and that. Uh, that itself, again, gives you, I think, a more interesting dramatic conceit. If you're actually trying to tell an interesting story, a story of radically enhanced productivity is one that I think is much more potentially interesting than a story where people are just sitting around being marshmallows. And uh, perhaps it allows you to feel uh, like you've made a satirical point about our, our society today, um, but I'm not sure that it's the most original or interesting point at this you know, this point in time. Okay, so thanks for listening to our top 10. If you guys have been listening to the show from the beginning, some of this might have been review, but this was just intended to be the final word on this stuff. So hopefully you appreciated hearing it all laid out in one big list. Now, today we also want to talk again about our Kickstarter, which is getting very, very close to happening. This is for our graphic novel called Let Go. And you can go to letgocomic.com We've got even more new art up there, including a, a really cool poster image. So check that out. I think this is something that if you care about transhumanism and technological unemployment and accelerating change that you will be interested in. Just one little tidbit about what we're trying to do different here. I mean, you probably got the impression from our, our list today that we are interested in seeing sci-fi do different and new things. And the sort of the thing that we're trying to do differently is to show 
multiple technological changes within the story. Right. Sometimes these sci-fi stories, they'll have great technological changes represented, but they present them in a kind of static world. But we want to try to do something that uh, shows the experience that people are having now and that we think we're going to have even more in the future of kind of feeling this vertigo due to the rapid pace of technological change. Future shock, in the words of Elvin Toffler. That's right. Um, that's what the experience of right now is. It's it's new things coming out all the time. So that's what we want to draw. And always feeling like you're behind, feeling like you haven't adopted the thing that you need to adopt. We, we feel that now, and I think uh, it's just going to get more extreme as more and more technological capabilities come online. So. so the way it works in the story is we have a family that's at the center of it, and we do multiple time jumps, right? Right. So we start in a future kind of like right now. It's, it's just a little bit different in that we have more pervasive versions of some of the technologies that are just on the cusp, like self-driving cars and wearable computers and virtual reality. But then pretty quickly in the script, we're going to jump forward. Right. We're going to jump a year forward. And when we come back, the world's going to have been just transformed by those technologies. So not only will there be self-driving cars, but nobody will drive a car anymore. And not only will there be AR glasses, but they'll be adopted by everyone and the cultural effects of everybody being connected to the internet, having it strapped to your face all the time are going to already be felt. And then as the story goes on, uh, it periodically shifts further and further into the future. And each time it does, the jump in time, the actual amount of time we skip gets less and less. But the amount of change that we represent when we come back gets more and more as a way of kind of building in accelerating change to the structure of our story. Right. It's, instead of picking one technology and saying, hey, this would be great to tell a story about, we're just picking the idea of accelerating change itself turning up the volume on that and seeing how that affects our characters and our, our family. So that's, that's Let Go. Uh, that's our graphic novel. We're super excited about it. So you know, please check it out. Uh, we're going to be coming back at you with an announcement about the Kickstarter, which should be going live within the next two weeks or so. Very soon, we're going to be going live with this Kickstarter. And yeah, I mean, you've just heard us basically bitch and moan about uh, all the things that we don't like when uh, we see them too often in, in science fiction stories. This is our attempt to really do the work and short circuit those cliches and get around them and try to imagine a plausible future world that's still dramatic and still interesting and, and still a, a, a fun place you want to be. Okay, well, thanks as always for listening. Remember that we're on Twitter at RTF underscore podcast and that we have a iOS app now. That's right. Search for us in the app store. So we'll see you next episode. Yeah, thanks for listening. To subscribe or leave a comment on this episode, please visit reviewthefuture.com. You can also send emails to feedback at reviewthefuture.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>